you would take your Bible, open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to read the first five verses, but then we're going to back up and look at a few things out of the first chapter. There is a comparison made by Paul as he addresses the Thessalonican church. He calls them, we'll read momentarily, a church in which the word of the Lord is running swiftly and is glorified. There are certain characteristics or attributes of this church that we read in the first chapter, which I want to rehearse with you so that we can model our own lives and congregations after this church that Paul so highly commends so that it might be rightly said and said in truth of us out of all three churches represented that the word of God is running swiftly and is glorified. That is our desire. That is our goal. The scriptures use different metaphors to describe the assembly of the saints, ones that we're familiar with, like salt and light. We accomplish those primarily by being part of a congregation, being part of an assembly where the word of God holds sway over our thought, over our actions. So if you'd follow along as I read the first five verses, Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from, e- from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come. We come in Christ's name. We come based upon his work, his merits, through the way that he has opened for us. And Lord, we read here of a church, of an assembly, in which the word of God runs swiftly, in which the word of God has free course and is spreading. Lord, we, had, we desire increasingly that the word of God would have free course among us. Father, we pray that you would shape and mold us by your word, that you would more and more renew our minds, that the word of God would prove effectual, effectual in us, accomplishing its purposes. Lord, wean us more and more away from the things of the world. We're told in the scriptures that they are fleeting, they are passing, they are not substantial. So, Father, we pray that you would make us people of the word in thought and practice. We pray that you would accomplish this in us by your spirit and to the praise and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So let me ask you a question. What type of church is a church in which the word of the Lord runs swiftly? 
And I realize there's different translations represented here. So let me give you the different words that are used. I've read to you the New King James Version. Run swiftly and be glorified. The King James says to have free course and be glorified. New American Standard says to spread rapidly and be glorified. In the English Standard Version, to speed ahead and be honored. I want to be a part of a church like that. And I know that you do as well. And thank the Lord. Because he has been exceedingly merciful and gracious to us, we can say that he has placed us in churches like that. Unique, in a sense. The Word of God given the place of prominence. No other thing to draw. Just a word opened. The Scriptures preached. The Scriptures read. But I want to ask a question and then answer it from the first chapter. Because Paul highly commends this church, and he even begins this letter by giving thanks to God because of the things that are observed in this church. Let me remind you what we just read. He's praying and asking for prayer that just as it is with this church, it would be in other places. So that's a question, or a statement rather, of examination for us. Would we find ourselves in such a position that someone else speaking in truth, speaking in truth which accords to the Word of God, would say, I want other churches in other places to be just like you. I want other churches and other places to be established that hold the Word of God in high esteem and where the Word of God accomplishes its purposes among you. What are the characteristics of such a church? And here we can look at this from two angles, or, or if you have the old familiar illustration, two different sides of the same coin. Primarily, this is what the Word of God accomplishes in a church, but then there is also a welcoming, hospitable attitude within an assembly that welcomes the Word of God to perform this work. And so both are necessary. Both are part of what the Lord uses to sanctify us and to make us further conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not be conformed to the image of Christ outside of the Word of God chiseling us, molding us, shaping us, fashioning us, washing us. Nothing else will conform us to His image, He Himself being the very Word of God. So if we go back to the first chapter, we can see the characteristics, or we might call them attributes, that the Word of God has produced in this church but yet also that the church has welcomed. And so this is not something that we should see. The Word of God has produced in them contrary to their own will. The Word of God produced this in them, and then they yearned for it. And very much akin to the Lord giving them the desire of their heart, which desire He implanted in the first place. And so if you're looking in chapter 1, I'm going to point you to a couple of verses. After the familiar greeting, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the greeting to the church and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Paul then in the third verse begins to give thanks to God for these brethren. And he says this thanks to God is fitting, it's appropriate. What he has observed in them, the proper and fitting response is to praise the Lord for what he sees and what the Word has produced in them. So there's at least three things. I'm only going to draw out three things. You can read the entire chapter, really the first two chapters, and you might draw more out. But at least these three things are present in a church where the Word of God is running swiftly, where the Word of God is having free course and is being glorified. Notice, first of all, Paul says, I thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Your faith grows exceedingly. When you think of faith here as Paul uses it, think of the Hebrews 11 type of faith. He's not saying here necessarily that the faith which saves is growing. We believe the gospel message once. We can't add to the gospel message. But our faith in, or what we might say, in light of that message, grows. And it's that type of faith which is commended over and over again in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. All of those great names in, in, of the faith that are brought out there, it could be as easily or equally said of them that their faith was growing exceedingly. This is the type of faith which Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without which it is impossible to please God. faith that is feeding upon the Word of God. A faith that is being molded and fashioned and informed by the Word of God. A faith that is being held out to others that is a biblical faith and not a sham. That's the first attribute of a church in which the Word of God is running swiftly, and is being glorified. It's a growing church. Your faith grows exceedingly. It wouldn't be wrong to translate the word exponentially. Your faith today is stronger than it was yesterday, last week, or last year. The Word of God has produced this growth of faith in you. That's why it is said of Paul that this is a congregation, an assembly, in which the Word is running. The Word is moving. The Word is accomplishing its purposes. But there's a second characteristic or attribute here that Paul lists in these early verses. Not only does he give thanks to God, not only is his thanksgiving fitting because of their exceedingly growing faith, but he says, secondly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. This is the second characteristic, the second attribute of a congregation in which the Word of God is having free course. Notice what he says, the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. If it's been a while since you've read through the New Testament letters, epistles, and taken note 
of what we call all the one another passages. Go back and read and take note of each one. Dozens of things that the church are called to do for one another. Some of the more notable, we are to love one another, which is commended here. We are to grieve with one another, to weep, to rejoice with one another, to pray with and for one another. All of these are different ways that the expression of our love is abounding towards one another. Some of you, as I, come from large extended families. I have a lot of extended family right here in Lamar County. And I love them. And I do things for them. But there is something different. Something even exponentially different about the brethren in the Lord to whom we have been knit together as the Lord has seen fit. Linked arms side by side to come alongside one another and to one another in love. That is something that only the Word of God will produce in me. I am not naturally that way. You are not naturally that way. We naturally do not give of ourselves in this way. But when the Word of God is running swiftly and having free course in a congregation, we will love one another in all types of ways. And very often we think of that love as a positive expression, and we should. And even though I'm hesitant to phrase it like this, there are negative expressions of that love too which in the end proved to be positive. But when we approach one another in love, in truth, with a word of rebuke, with a word of exhortation or admonishing, that's an expression of love one to another. There should be that person in your life, in your church, that you would commit yourself to and heed what they say, if they were to come to you and confront you, and you would hear them because you know they love you. The Word of God running swiftly and having free course. It takes a courageous and bold brother to go to another and say, I see this. And it shouldn't be there to confront that sin. You realize that's an expression of love to you. That's an expression of God's mercy given to you. That's the second characteristic or attribute of a church in which the Word of God is speeding ahead. Not only is there exceedingly growing faith, but there is love abounding. Love boiling over. The Word of God certainly produces this, but individual members of the church cultivate this. In a sense, it's contagious. If you're loving me in a biblical way, and I'm loving you, and then we're together loving someone else, and and the congregation as a whole is made up of those that are loving one another, it's kind of like a, a pot that's risen to a boil. It's active. It's producing heat. That's the picture of a church in which the Word of God is speeding ahead. But there's a third characteristic here as well, before we move back to the third chapter. 
Back to this verse. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. That's number one. Number two, the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your, here's the third, your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Certainly it can only be said of an individual Christian or an assembly of Christians, if there is a, what Paul calls here, patience and faith and endurance in the midst of persecution, the Word of God has produced that in you. Your flesh and mine kicks against persecution, tribulation, trial of any kind. We do not very often, when we are not being dominated by the Scriptures, our thinking does not very often just tend towards endurance. But when we read the Scriptures and we realize that over and over and over again, we're told that because of His great love for us, He disciplines us and He brings persecutions and tribulations and trials and sufferings for our good, then when the Word of God is speeding ahead in our own hearts in that way, then we patiently submit to it and we endure it. And so really, if we rephrase these, what we find as the attributes in which, of a church in which the Word of God is accomplishing its purposes is a church that is growing in faith, a church that is abounding in love, and a church that is persevering in hope. Faith, hope, love. The Word of God produces these things in a church, but then the other side of that coin, the church has to be hospitable and welcoming of the Word of God performing this function in us. I don't remember who this is original to, but I read this some while back. Speaking of this church and others like it, this is a church where the gospel of Christ has not only gained an entrance, but has gained control. We give him all the glory and praise when the gospel of Christ makes an entrance, when things are being accomplished in the church, when our children are being saved, when other members of the congregation are coming to faith, when the Spirit of God is moving and regenerating hearts, where there is real conversion that is well-founded, where there are baptisms like we just witnessed and one we witnessed even earlier today. So this is the type of church, if you want to just summarize those three things, the type of church where the, where the Word of God is running swiftly and is being glorified is a church where the gospel has gained an entrance but also has gained control. There is submission. You know, why do, why do our churches have pulpits? Why, if we were to have been alive 100 or 200 years ago, would this pulpit have been a little more exalted than it is here? Why did Spurgeon climb a spiral staircase to preach? Why did Lloyd-Jones stand the same way to preach? 
It was illustrative of the church being under the Word of God, being in submission to the Word of God, in all things being submissive to the Word. And so when we look at these three things, faith, hope, and persevering, or excuse me, faith, hope, and love, now we can understand why Paul is giving thanks to God for these brethren. Now we can understand why he's saying this is fitting. This is exactly what I have prayed and, and hoped would happen as I've traveled and made my circuit and preached the gospel. I see in you what I hope and pray will happen in every church. Remember, we're back in the third chapter now in verse 1. The word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Just as it is with you. If we're looking at these verses a little more closely, verse 1, it's not unusual for us to see where Paul and his companions are requesting prayer. That happens fairly often. Perhaps most notably in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, for himself, when he prays there after giving a great look behind the scenes, so to speak, of the real wrestle and wrestling and warring of the faith, he then says, pray for me. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So to see him request prayer is nothing new. To read it again, he says, finally, brethren, pray for us. And that leads us to make this observation. Every established, fruitful work of the Lord is at least in part due to the prayers of the saints. Every established, fruitful work of the Lord is at least in part due to the prayers of the saints. Brethren, pray for us. Very often, I will hear from some of you that you have been praying for our church. And we very often pray for your churches. As we pray for one another, in all of the ways in which we pray, let us adopt this verse. Lord, may your word run swiftly and be glorified in Grace Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant. Lord, may your word run swiftly and be glorified in Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Lord, may your word run swiftly and be glorified right here in our own home church. Now, we've said, or I've said these words over and over again. I want to talk about the specific words that Paul uses. Again, other interpretations, free course, spread rapidly, speed ahead, be glorified, be honored. The first one could be translated as well that the word may just run swiftly in the New King James as an addition to help us gain the sense. 
It's interesting when you study this word. This is the word in Luke 15, that great parable of what we call the prodigal son, but which is really a, a parable of the love of a father. This is the word that's used of that father when he finally sees that son, having come to his senses, what does that father do? He runs to him. He moves swiftly. He speeds ahead. He, he speeds rapidly towards his son. The second word, glorified, just as easily could be translated honored, and it is in the ESV. Both of these are ways that are commended by Paul as he observes the church. He sees the word of God in these two ways, making great advance, bringing the people of God under submission, transforming them, working effectually in them. And then perhaps, though it isn't worded like this, I don't suppose it would be wrong for us to see it's because it's being held in reverence. It's because it's being glorified, because it's being honored. I think each pastor, if given opportunity to stand here, would, say, would make the declaration, I have nothing to say to you as a church other than what the Word of God calls me to say. There is no wisdom of my own. There is no experience that I've had that is greater than yours. There is nothing that I have learned. There is nothing that I would teach myself or my children or you all that the Word of God has not taught me. And that's why in all of our services, though they may look a little different, the order may be somewhat different, I think it's safe to say that the Word of God is dominating the service. We're reading it. We're praying it. We're trying to sing in accord with it, if not singing it directly. And I think it's also safe to say that we have no interest in anything else. You know as well as I do that there are any number of what I call bells and whistles that might attract someone into an assembly. But can I just say this very honestly with you? I'm not interested in attracting those kind of people. Not because I'm not loving towards them at all. My desire is for people who are hungry for the Word of God to come. And if someone looking for a bell and whistle happens to come in amongst us, thank the Lord, but they're going to get the Scriptures. And hopefully, Lord willing, He will implant in them the same desire that He has planted in all of us, highly regarding the Word of God. So as we move through this verse... Paul requesting prayer, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. The second point that I want to make here that actually Paul makes, not only are we to pray for the swift moving of the word and the honoring of the word, we're to pray for deliverance from those that would hinder the work of the gospel. Notice this with me in the second verse. Maybe it's still the first verse. Honestly, I can't see it to tell you. It's verse 2. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. If the work of the gospel is to go forward, 
this first thing must be in place. The Word of God honored, moving rapidly, but then the hindrances are to be prayed against. We could even base this upon the model prayer that we're given by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Deliver us from evil. We've all had experiences in church life. Many of them good, joyful. Some of them not so much. And in those ones that are not so pleasurable and joyful, there is almost a direct correlation that the Word of God is no longer running swiftly. That speeding ahead has been stunted for a while. That's not to say that even through the exercise of church discipline, the Word of God could speed ahead. And I would say that that's proof positive that it is. If a church is willing to be obedient to the Lord, to exercise discipline on an unrepentant brother in hopes that they would be restored. But I'm talking about just those agitations, unbiblical thoughts that have crept in. And I always think of Jude, you know that short letter, no chapter or verse, just verse where there were those who crept in on their bellies unnoticed. Can you get that image in your mind? Can can you see someone crawling down one of the aisles here on their belly? That's the image that Jude paints for us. And he goes on to say those men were long ago marked out for that condemnation. And then he gives all types of descriptions. Clouds without water. And they look like they're going to produce this great... Abundance of rain, but when the time comes, there's absolutely nothing. They've proven themselves to be dry. Paul here is praying and asking for prayer that he be delivered from unreasonable. But then he also qualifies them as wicked men. Perhaps Alexander the coppersmith would be an example. Paul said of him, he has done me much harm. And no doubt he could give many other examples. It was the unreasonable and wicked men in place after place where he would go to preach the gospel that ran him out of town, that beat him and left him for dead. And he says here of them, and the reason that we pray, not all have faith. This is more than just a statement of the obvious. We know that not all men have faith. That's what we talked about somewhat in our worship service here this morning. There are only two categories of men. Those who are perishing and those who are inheriting eternal life. Of course, there's different ways we could state those two categories. But Paul's directive here is just stating that for not all have faith, but it's more than that. Paul is giving us and explaining what lies behind the activity of these men. Why do they act the way they do? Why do they say the things they say? Why do they disrupt the work of the Lord the way they do? Why is their love not abounding to all the saints? Why is it the opposite? Why is their faith not growing exceedingly? 
Why is there no faith at all? Why is there no perseverance in the tribulations? Why is there only kicking against it and trying to get out from under it? The only explanation, not all have faith. They are exhibiting their enmity towards the truth. To use Paul's words, they are kicking against the goads. The antagonism is completely in accord with their nature. Where there is no faith, and especially no exceedingly growing faith, where there is no love implanted there by the Spirit of God, where there is no perseverance under persecution, then the truth of what Paul says here rises to the surface. We need to pray to be delivered from such men. Wicked, faithless men who comprise part of the visible church. The wheat, the tares amongst the wheat, the goats amongst the sheep. Their mouths need to be stopped. I want to remind you of what Paul says. We skipped over this back in the first chapter. But of these unreasonable and wicked men, Paul says this in verse 9. Verse 8 of chapter 1. We're jumping right in the middle of a thought here, but he says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all of those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. This is the end of these unreasonable and wicked men. But notice, as we move into the third verse, Paul brings a reminder, and a necessary reminder, even to a church in which the Word of God is having free course. And that's an important point to note. He commends this church for their faith, their love, and their persevering hope. But he, if you read the entire letter, you'll realize that this church was no different than any other. There were hardships, persecutions, trials, of which we're told in the Scripture will surely come. And what do they, as well as we, need to be reminded of? Well, it's in the third verse. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. What will he do as an expression of his faithfulness to us? What will he do as an expression of the word of the Lord, the gospel itself, having free course among us? Well, two things are listed here in the third verse of how the Lord will express his faithfulness to a congregation that is welcoming, hospitable, to the message of the gospel and willing and desiring to have the gospel not just in its midst, but controlling the happenings of the church. The first is this. 
The Lord is faithful who will establish you. The word establish here means to be placed on a firm foundation. What is persecution, trial, suffering, tribulation? What does that do in the heart and life of a believer? Well, very often it can cause us to waver, to be shaky. The Lord is faithful. He will come. And he will place your feet back upon the rock, which is Christ. He will establish you. And then it just elevates from there. Second, he will guard you from the evil one. The Lord expresses his faithfulness to a church in which his word, the gospel, is running swiftly and is glorified by establishing and guarding them. We need not fear that we be so shaken that we cease to be. We need not fear that the evil one will completely overtake and destroy the work of the Lord. And the only reason we have for thinking that is in the third verse, the Lord is faithful. He will build his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Paul goes on to mention further confidence that he has in the Lord concerning this church. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Two more things. He gave two expressions of the Lord's faithfulness, establishment, and guarding the now two things concerning them, he says, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, in their day, when they heard from Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the way that he introduces himself in so many of his letters, they welcomed it. If you go back to the first epistle of his to the Thessalonians, second chapter, first chapter, around about verse 13. He's praising God again because the word that they heard from him, they welcomed or were hospitable to just as if it was the very word of God and indeed it was. And so this is his expression of confidence that you do and will do the things we command you. that you will do presently and that you will do in the future. Which leads us to state a principle like this. Present obedience leads to future obedience. Present obedience ensures that we will be obedient in the future. It's wrong thinking. It's faulty thinking. And I can illustrate this for you. It's wrong thinking to say that we can be disobedient now or even in a small thing and obedient in a larger thing later. Here's the illustration. If your two-year-old will not obey you, they will not obey you when they're three, nor will they obey you when they're 13, 14, 15. So what do you do? You teach them to obey you when they're two or when they're one and a half or when they're one, 
whenever it is. Parents, it's faulty, worldly thinking to think that we can let our children go and then at some point down the road, we'll gain control. The same principle applies to our own spiritual obedience to the Lord. We have to be obedient presently. That is the only thing that ensures our future obedience. It is imperative that we obey God now. It's not enough to say, I will obey Him sometime in the future. How often have you had conversation or heard someone say, oh, I'll I'll be obedient to the gospel. I'll express faith and give a profession of the gospel later. How dangerous is that? How foolish is that? Can we not bring that home and, and implant it right here in this thought? Paul says there are two things. And notice he's talking to a church in which the word of God is running ahead and speeding forth, that their faith is growing, their love is abounding, they're persevering in hope. And he tells them, I am confident since this is happening in you, you will be obedient now and in the future to the things that I would command you. And that brings us to the end of what we're looking at here this afternoon, the fifth verse. And after Paul has asked for prayer for himself, Silas, and Timothy in their ministry, their evangelistic ministry, now he prays for this church. One, one verse. But how full this verse is. The fifth verse. This is his prayer. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now may the Lord direct your hearts, give his leading and guidance. And direct you into the love of God. To be directed into the love of God is the only thing that produces abounding love to one another. That the Spirit of God would come alongside of us and point us into, that's the language here, that He would direct your hearts. That he would lead you, your heart, into the love of God. When we realize, and when that love of God rests and settles upon us, then what happens? It's got to come out somewhere, right? Or we'll explode. When the Lord directs my heart into his own love, when I understand the great love for, in which he loved me, that while I was yet dead in sin, he gave himself for me, The more I understand the expression of God's love for me, the more I am going to love those around me, whether it's my brother and sister in the Lord or whether it's that lost person that is to be the object of my pity but also the object of my evangelism. But then there's a second thing. May he not only direct your hearts into the love of God but into and into The patience of Christ. 
That phrase, patience of Christ, should cause us to stop and think long and hard. There is much to ponder in the patience of Christ. How patient was our Lord? How enduring, how long-suffering was He? How much did He endure? But then we also know how victorious He is. He endured for the joy that was set before Him. And in that, He's our supreme example. Why do we endure? Out of our love for Him and the joy that is set before us. And to the patience of Christ. So let me ask a question. Just a question of application here. Where are you? Where, where am I? In this paragraph, these few verses that we've looked at. Are we numbered amongst those that are giving manifest evidence of our faith? We haven't read this verse yet. I want to point you back to it. The fourth verse of the first chapter, Paul says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. It's the fifth verse that I want to direct you to, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Reminded of verses like Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So are we individuals in which the word of God is speeding ahead that make up a larger whole? It seems to be that that's the way this works. A church that has these characteristics or attributes, faith, love, and hope, is comprised of individual Christians, individual members, in which these same attributes are found to the same degree. Put them all together. And Paul says, this is, notice he doesn't just say evidence. This is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Are you in that number? I pray to God we are. But you have to remember there's a second group that we read about. Those not having faith. Let me speak to you for a moment. I'm not here saying that you are in the number of these unreasonable and wicked men yet. But that's where you're headed. If you're part of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not yet found in Him, if you do not humble yourself, repent of your sins, come in faith believing that He is all He said He is, 
and that his death has accomplished all that the scriptures say it has, then given enough time, given enough experience, you will be the unreasonable and wicked man. The unreasonable and wicked woman who has no faith and is disturbing the work and the advance of the gospel. For the last several weeks, we've been studying John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he tells him, this Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, putting much stock and faith in his own heritage, what does he tell him? You must be born again. And so for our own church, overlook the fact that I'm repeating a thing or two here. Jesus dealt with individuals in different ways. He tells the proud Pharisee, your birth means nothing. You must be born again. He tells the rich young ruler, your wealth is what's keeping you from the kingdom. You must give it all up. Each circumstance or each relationship or conversation Jesus has is unique. Not one of them is repetitive. They're all specific. But back to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. The same thing is applicable to every one of us. The new birth is mysterious. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that precedes your proclamation or profession of faith. Some may ask the question and wonder, I don't know if I'm born again. If there is anything in you that wants to reach out and grab Christ and make him your own, if there is anything in you that makes you want to flee from the wrath to come, if there is anything in you that makes you want to fix your eyes upon Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher or perfecter of your faith, and you have good cause to reason that you are born again. That work is mysterious, and there is a responsibility on our part to come, make the profession of faith, identify with Christ boldly, unashamed, to join ourselves to a congregation in which the word of the Lord is running swiftly and being glorified. So in closing, let me just thank the Lord for three churches represented in whom the word of the Lord is increasingly speeding ahead and is honored. Strive by the help and the grace of God within you, the Spirit of God within you, to be a part of that larger whole, to the glory of Christ alone. And do it humbly. Do it humbly. You can take no 
pride and what the Spirit does in you or in me, we just are humbled to the dust to think, I know what's in my heart, but yet Christ has come, made me new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this service of worship. We're thankful for the fellowship of the saints. We're thankful for the encouragement of believers. Lord, our desire increasingly is to be numbered amongst those that it is considered fitting of them to give an expression of praise to you that the word of God holds such sway over them. Father, that's our desire. We pray you would grant it increasingly. We pray that you would give it to us of grace and mercy. That you would bless us with your favor. That the word of the Lord, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would so permeate our churches that it would rightly be said of us, the word of the Lord is running, spreading, being honored, being glorified. Father, I thank you for the baptism that we witnessed. We pray for this young man, Lord, that you would lead and guide him in a way that honors you. Make him a blessing to the family of faith of which he's a part. And Lord, we pray that you would save even more of our children. Save even more adults among us. Save the strangers that come in sometimes even unnoticed and set among us, Lord. We pray even for the one that was here with us this morning. Father, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us. We give Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, all the praise and glory, taking no credit, receiving no glory to ourselves, all praise and glory to him. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.